cool. And welcome to Ultimate, where we dive deep into Earth 1610, the Ultimate Universe. I am your host, Eddie, and I am here with my co-host, Henry. Um, Ultimate Marvel line is a piece of comic history with a very bad rip, and Ultimate is here to see if that rip is justified. We're taking on 15 years of comic book history, um, and we're delving into what makes this Ultimate Universe unique, from the good to the bad to the oh dear God, why? <laughs> but first up, how... We're just doing like some general catch-up sort of side of things. How how's everything been going? I feel like we've actually had a pretty big kind of two like week and a half, two weeks. Cause I feel like last time when we recorded, we talked about we were going to see Oppenheimer for your mm. birthday. Yeah. And then I think I mentioned I was going to see Barbie. I went Oppenheimer on Friday, then Barbie on Monday. Did you do the both? I did the both. I didn't yeah. <laughs> have you seen both yet or? Yeah, I did the other way around. I saw Barbie. <laughs> I saw Barbie on the Wednesday and we saw Oppenheimer on the Friday. Yeah. What was what was your thoughts like? And I, I will do it in your order. Your order then. So, what, Barbie? What was your kind of uh, it was, overall? <laughs> it was okay. Um, I thought uh, there's some some some. We have, I have some thoughts. I do think that uh, we we. I do, I do think it's one of those things where um, I think they didn't really know what to do with Barbie, but mm. they knew what to do with Ken. I yeah. thought that Ken had like a really ironically had like a the stronger character arc and i think that barbie they didn't know if they were doing like lego movie uh toy story 3 or pinocchio and they kind of did all three mm. and they kind of did a rush <laughs> all three so i thought the ken stuff was great the, the barbie stuff was kind of a bit messy but still fun overall mm. yeah after <laughs> the lego movie i did see someone talking about how will ferrell plays essentially the same <laughs> yeah, character yeah. between the lego movie and Exactly, and, <laughs> and but but also like, have you realised that the the world in the Barbie movie, like the the whole idea as well, is like the the toy mm. that they play with, but like it's not consistent. If you, did you notice that? No, what was it? So it's only the to so the Barbie, right? Mm. So the Barbie is being played by the the mum. Yeah, yeah, but the other dolls weren't owned by the mum or any of the sets. Oh, uh, but right. then also it affected the real world, like the whole Ken stuff. <laughs> so, but, oh, yeah. So how how does it make sense? It was it was one of those things where I feel like they <laughs> to go real deep cut on the. It was one of the things where I feel like they they set up <laughs> the idea of obviously like something that happens in one world then kind of influences the other, like Lego Movie. But then I yeah. guess I guess maybe that's the point. Maybe they were doing it like they're gonna they were doing. I guess maybe that's the, that works within <laughs> that but that kind of arc you're talking about that sort of thing where obviously you see you see that work where ken starts influencing the real world and obviously someone in the real world starts influencing yeah <laughs> i think i think also it's i think they it's, it's difficult to make a, a movie about a doll like because there's no backstory you know mm. yeah it's quite difficult to so i guess you always look at the the touchstones right of anything about a toy you know the the um pinocchio kind of story yeah. and the toy was, story and it was definitely like because yeah because because then I saw because I feel like Oppenheimer I had it the whole weekend to kind of process Oppenheimer and then like yeah. and and to be fair the only I know it's one of those big ones everyone it's the big one about how a lot of guys are responding to the Barbie movie oh, and yeah. the the only the only part I felt attacked at was the Zack Snyder Justice League they made like one little jab at that it was like I have like thoughts about the Zack Snyder Justice League cut yeah <laughs> and I, that was the only thing I was just like. Again, I wasn't one of the aggressive Zack Snyder no. Justice Cut fans, but it was one of the things I was like, damn, that 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 was the only one that had a little bit close to home. I was I was very much like um it did make me think of like very twenty sixteen to 
2020 when there was just like all those Zack Snyder jokes like all the time. Mm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, 2016 just cool. <laughs> but um, no, it was it was good. It was fun. I thought Ken was great. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought thought he he had definitely had like the best like character arc mm. in the whole thing, which I thought was kind of kind of funny. It would have been so fun to be an extra in that movie. Yeah, just 100%. <laughs> and then to the flip of it, Oppenheimer. How was... I feel like that's a very... Because I'm... My controversial... My feeling is I... On re-watching Oppenheimer, I think yeah. I'll appreciate it more. Because... But overall, obviously... I think the thing is I enjoyed Barbie more than I enjoyed Oppenheimer. But that's because I think Oppenheimer was not necessarily like an enjoyment yeah. film. <laughs> I think Oppenheimer I prefer just because I think its ideas and themes were much more consistent. I think that my problem with Barbie is more like... I don't think he has a consistent themes or ideas. Mm -hmm. I think that the more you look at it, the more it falls apart. Well, like Oppenheimer is very solid. It knows what it's doing. And I, I appreciated that. I don't think either of them are probably even in my top five films of the year. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I saw um, Talk To Me the other night. Oh. Uh, Friday night, yeah. yeah. Um, have you seen that? No. Or heard about that? Really good. It's about, it's an Australian horror movie. Um, and it's about uh, these people who um they're like high schoolers and it has one of the most like realistic depiction of like high schoolers mm. and there's a really good um idea that essentially they can they there's this hand that they touch and then you can be possessed uh while you're holding holding it you can be possessed and you can um see like the dead mm. and essentially they these stupid kids use it as like a party thing and they all dare each other to do it and they all watch it and they, it's kind of like similarly about drug use but also about thrill seeking there's like really interesting ideas mm. in there and i think it's probably it's also like one of the horror movies that genuinely disturbs me yeah in points like genuinely shocks me and i was like can you do that and i've <laughs> not felt that for a long time yeah so I think you should you should check that out. It's very interesting if you like those kind of horror God, movies. I, I I struggle with horror, but I will. I probably it's one of the things where I feel like I I can't go to the movies to watch horror. To like I have to like watch horror movies at home. Yeah. But yeah, because for me, Oppenheimer, I really enjoyed. I think the only thing that let me down a little bit, and mm. actually I feel like my mum because my mum always talks about when she watched Pulp Fiction and how obviously it's a movie that's out of order, like chronologically. Yeah. And I did think a little bit that there were sections of Oppenheimer that were it ultimately all tied together in the third act, especially, and especially after yeah. the bomb, it becomes a lot clearer, but then I think it becomes a lot clearer, but up to that point, I think I didn't quite get or didn't quite see or thought it didn't, wasn't quite as effective to see how they jumped between the different time periods, obviously the Manhattan projects, then the hearing and then, uh, Oppenheimer's security clearance hearing and then Strauss's hearing. Yeah. Like I think I think there was a better way to layer those and layer those jumps between time. Yeah. And uh, I, that was the only thing I think that kind of let me down a little bit with it. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think I have as strong opinions with that. I think that it's um I I just remember enjoying and as in like I, I just like the themes and the ideas in it. Um mm. but yeah, I don't. I don't have as, <laughs> as strong a feeling about it. I don't know that that you do, which I think is is fair enough. I I, I need to watch it again to, to think <laughs> that. Was it also again? It's the first time I've seen something in IMAX. Oh I, yeah, that's I, great. I don't know if I noticed any particular difference, but to be fair, I don't watch a lot of 
for, yeah. I, I guess I, I don't have a, a reference point. Yeah. So actually, one of the things is that it has a. It's you see more you see more picture. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, did you see you saw Zack Snyder's Justice League? Yeah. You know how it's square. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's it's IMAX. So essentially when it's not IMAX, they cut off the top and they cut off the bottom. Oh, so if okay. you see it, if you look up, it's square. The IMAX scenes are square. So oh, okay. when it's shot in IMAX, it's square. So you see more picture mm-hmm. um, because essentially what happens with those kind of cameras, they, yeah, like I said, they to put onto a normal screen, mm. you cut off the top and you cut off the bottom and the picture's a lot clearer as well. Yeah. Um, so I think you probably would notice if you went into... Uh, if yeah. you went straight into another one after, yeah, um, because it it does feel like uh, God. What, what what's it? Have you have you ever seen those like Simpsons, uh, the Simpsons ones when they tried to like when we first got oh, flat screen yes, and they cut yes, off the top I and they cut off that. the bottom yeah. or they stretch it a little bit? Well, yes, yeah, so, or they yeah they cut off bits so yeah, you only got there were like visual gags that you missed because they had been chopped out of the screen. They chop yeah, so it's a little bit like that. Although they are also obviously filmed with the idea that most people will be watching it in standard mm. but yeah that's essentially what it is because i remember people getting really confused when zack snyder's justice league came out again mm. talking about zack snyder's justice league <laughs> uh so maybe barbie has a point but um <laughs> there was sort of these things where people were complaining going like why is the sides cut off and it's like actually it's not because it's a complete director's cut he's like yeah i want to see like everything mm. that i shot yeah all right so from, from movies to comics what have been the, what have been your comic readings this week as well uh yeah so uh probably i guess starman yep. i've been reading the compendium the first compendium it's been pretty great who's the writer for that uh james robinson yep. yeah um i believe jay robinson yeah no it is and um what else i guess a couple of the night terrors but yep. not too many a lot of it just doesn't interest me but anything that has the that i like get the um the continual run of yeah and then it's the same writers as the normal run so for example shazam is still mark wade uh even though it's the night terrors yeah so it's consistent um jeremy adams is still doing green lantern night terrors uh i think that's it though i think all the (laughs) others like batman isn't zadarsky and um flash isn't even wally west but it's not even it's not even just not cyspiria or um or Jeremy Adams, but it's also <laughs> not even Wally West, so I'm just like not interested whatsoever. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, so my one I, I spent all yesterday catching up with X Men. So nice. essentially getting up to I read the Hellfire Gala this morning. And yeah, so I read all of the Sins of Sinister, which I think is Ewing and Gillen. Um X Men Red, which is Al Ewing, and X and that's fantastic. And then the Hellfire Gala, which is like Every year, it's like the X Men's Met Gala, but it becomes their big kind of all the essentially sets the sets the sets the tone and sets the pace for the next year of comics, hmm. and it was pretty pretty big. So, <laughs> but also, I guess moving from that to our actual comics of discussion today, we're looking at Ultimate Spider Man numbers one through seven. So, Ultimate Spider Man is what kicks off the Ultimate Marvel Universe in two thousand. Um, it's written by Brian Michael Bendis and uh, Mark Bagley. And I guess before we get into what what I'm thinking we'll do is do like some of our initial, just uh, just bare bones kind of initial kind of thoughts. Um, then we'll take a brief break um, for what we call what we're calling the ultimate summary, which is just going to be we're going to cover and kind of recap the issues that we cover in each episode. Um, 
and then use that to kind of give a bit of backdrop to our like more in-depth in-depth discussions our deep dives and <laughs> so i guess before we get into the summary sort of side of things um what were your kind of overall just kind of general thoughts about this is mm. like a obviously as the start of the ultimate universe but as a story arc of comics yeah so the interesting thing for me is this isn't the first ultimates um comic that i've read despite mm-hmm. being the first one released i i read ultimates first so we were we won't get into that today obviously but um it's very different to to ultimates uh again we'll get into the comparisons when we get into the fir- uh, probably ultimate x-men right yeah yeah which is first mark miller one that we'll we'll get into in depth but um i think my thoughts are it's it's less it's kind of to me it was less what i thought it was going to be like it's definitely um very comic booky mm. it's very uh it's less kind of talking about political things that are happening at the time it, but more just kind of doing a new take mm. on the origin for new readers i guess yeah um has this the first time that they kind of redid kind of a batman year one style like redoing the origin is this so, the first time they did that since like the 60s or that's something i you found out and again i was watching a couple of interviews with mark bagley and with brian michael bendis and they talked about actually only probably two years previously they had done something called Spider-Man Chapter One, oh. and again, it was kind of the same base principle. It was like, hey, let's do a kind of slightly out of continuity, like in our own kind of set, let's uh, slightly out of continuity um, version retelling of Spider-Man's origin story. And I think the general feel of it was that, and it was written by John Byrne. It was like written and inked by John Byrne, who um, did a lot of obviously Claremont's X-Men. Like he was, you know, pretty pretty well-regarded kind of um, artist and creator for, in Marvel. But it just didn't quite hit. Yeah. And I don't know what it was. And I've, I'm quite, I've read a little bit of it. And I read the first issue, which I think covers the kind of everything from, you know, the Peter getting his powers to the death of Uncle Ben, essentially. And the vibe I kind of got from it was just like, it doesn't really change much. And it, it kind of condenses that into like what becomes an ultimate spider-man is over seven issues or over five issues of the first five issues or whatever it condenses that down to one so i think it probably resembles the original spider-man origin story a little bit more because that was one issue but i wonder if that was part of it is if that kind of retelling or reimagining if it didn't quite hit because maybe it had tried to mimic that that original style as opposed to fleshing it out differently Mm. But I think that, but that found that really interesting that that came out in like 1996 to 1998. There was like a 12 issue run or something. So I think that was a sh- interesting that that almost immediately proceeded, and then that was part of the concern. So I remember this interview with Mark Bagley. He talks about how he knew Spider-Man Chapter One had, who's the artist, who knew Spider-Man Chapter One had come out and hadn't done very well. So he had to be asked about two or three times if he wanted to come to do this book, to do Ultimate Spider-Man. Because he was like, I don't think this is going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was interesting to see that, like, they'd tried it, they'd quite, they'd tried it at reimagining and it hadn't taken off. And then someone, they just, they just kept pushing, Let's, this, this will work, this can work. But I think that was, yeah, that was really the interesting thing I found yeah. on that kind of front. But yeah, and I know for me, like, with the Ultimate Spider-Man, like, like, yeah, I started with Ultimate X-Men and mm. 
I think it, I think I, I really enjoyed it. I think in the same way, but I think in terms yeah. of like, it wasn't, like you said, it's not when you see some of the other stuff that we cover and we'll start covering in later episodes where it is a bit more politically relevant or kind of grounded in yeah. using superheroes to unpack that. And we talked about that in the first episode, that kind of Brian Michael Bendis style writing versus the Mark Millar style writing. Yeah. And I definitely felt, but it was, it was a very good feel good comic and kind of made me care a little bit more. I think it's probably to me, probably the most interesting version of Peter Parker's origin story that mm. we've gotten. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think for me it's, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's very, uh, it's, it's quite for me, d- 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 I don't want to people take this the wrong way, but it's kind of like fairly disposable mm. as in like, it's something which I pick up, read once, probably put, put down, yeah. like enjoyed it while I was doing it, but then kind of like enters, you know, kind of like leaves as soon as I put it down, I kind of, mm. I'm not thinking about it. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. I think that that can be a good thing. Kind of like a lot of people love, you know, things that you can turn off your brain, a bit of escapism. Mm. And I think that's, that's what it is. I think it's good for surface level enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the interesting thing was, is that I, I think the idea was that it was only going to be the seven issues. Like it wasn't intended to become like a 150 issue run. I think it was intended. I think so. A lot of the interviews was talked about. They were saying, like Bendis and and Bagley were saying, you know, we only expected it to write these, you know, these seven issues and then kind of move on. And then by the time the first one came out, Bagley was talking about how he had he'd essentially quit. He was just like, "Cool, I'm done. Once I'm once I'm finished this, I'm done." And then, as obviously the sales for the first couple of issues came in, they essentially had to be like. Um, they, they had to essentially kind of drag him back in. It was like, Mark, no, you you need to stay. Please stay on this. Yeah. And then it became one of the longest kind of running runs yeah. of Marvel. Like. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, obviously, uh, I think that's probably what's what, what's different to that. And, you know, something like Batman Year One mm. is that it's not that kind of one shot, even if it's like vaguely in continuity slash out of continuity, which it could have been. It's... Um, start of something bigger yeah i'm i'm confused so there was obviously that that kind of cliffhanger type thing Mm. at the Mm. at the at the end of of that was that was that kind of put in quite late or i'm not sure i didn't i might guess what it probably would have been like i think i think they were saying that bagley was doing the art for issue five when issue one came out so i think there must have been that delay so i presume probably at the end of it they were thinking but or, or it could have just been that you know like superhero comics have always done there's that kind of you know is the villain dead yeah and i think that probably might have just been they were just like cool like we're not expecting to do anything with this but we don't just want it to be like yeah. this is the one and done we do want to imply that there might be there might be something or you mm. know or you know leave it up to you to imagine what happens after <laughs> yeah yeah that's true cool i think we'll um take a brief moment to pause and jump into our summary and we will be back with our kind of big yeah. breakdown, <laughs> our big highlights and lowlights of the whole issue. It's cool. We'll get into that now. So we're coming up to the section of the show that we're calling ultimate summary, where we recap the issues that we're covering each episode. Um, we kind of wanted to do this to help give a bit more kind of background to our discussions. And, and again, like I think it's, we kind of recognize that not everyone's going to have access to comics. Like a lot of these comics are 20 plus years old and be quite hard to get a hold of. 
Um, so we think it's probably useful just to kind of like have this to kind of help scaffold in some of what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a bit of a work in progress as we work out what's going to be the most engaging format for this. At the moment, I think we're looking at switching up who records um, the section every few episodes between me and Henry. But we're also thinking this could be a good place to spotlight any guests or friends of ours who are kind of keen to get involved um, with the podcast. So, that you know, there's a bit more variation in the presenters. Um, but to jump right in, this week we're looking at Ultimate Spider-Man issues 1 to 7. Um, so they're written by Brian Michael Bendis and Bill Jemis. Pencils and Arts of the Art by Mark Bagley. Inked by Art Tiber and Dan Panosian. Coloured by Steve Bucolato, Marie Javins and JC. And lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Issue 1 opens uh, at Osborne Laboratories, uh, I presume in New York City, <laughs> somewhere in New York, um, with Norman Osborne examining a spider and delivering a monologue about his ambitions um, and his new wonder drug, Oz, to his lab of researchers. Um, his assistant places the spider in a container, but forgets to put the lid on, and the spider escapes. We then move to meet Peter Parker at the mall. It's the kind of traditional kind of American kind of high school drama kind of setup where He's kind of minding his own business, but being picked on by the popular kids. We get introduced to Mary Jane in the scene um, as part of the crowd, our part of the popular crowd, who, while she's sympathetic to Peter, doesn't really step in on any of the bullying. And then finally, we get introduced to Uncle Ben, who sees Peter being bullied um, and recognizes Mary Jane. And we kind of learn that Peter and Mary Jane are childhood friends. Um, the big kind of version, uh, the big difference between this kind of version of Uncle Ben and a lot of other ones is that he's kind of a bit hippie-ish and he's got like a like a graying ponytail, um, <laughs> which is probably one of my, probably my favorite details about this kind of um this reimagining. It's just Uncle Ben has a ponytail. We then follow Peter to school where he's being picked on again, and we kind of get a see a hint that he's kind of at his kind of breaking point with some of the bullies. Um, fortunately, um, Harry Osborn, Norman Osborn's son, intervenes. Harry is introduced as one of the popular kids who Peter helps out with his homework. Um, we then get introduced to kind of Aunt May, who's in this kind of like state of like kind of constant worry about Peter because Peter's so quiet. We then see um, Peter helping out Harry with his homework. Um, we kind of see that Harry's kind of take, taking advantage of Peter a bit. Um, but then we also find out that um, Peter is kind of working on some kind of chemical formula that he has inherited from his dad. Um, and we kind of see Harry kind of go home and try to talk to Norman, his father, about an upcoming school trip to Osborne Laboratories. Um, but kind of Norman, that kind of very, again, in that kind of stereotypical kind of rich New York businessman kind of father has no time for his son. Um, the following day, we open at the school trip to Osborne Labs. Um, Peter seems really, really excited to be around all the science, like he's in his element. But then almost immediately gets bitten by a spider, has a seizure and then passes out. And then Kong, one of Peter's bullies, crushes the spider. Norman Osborn finds out about the incident, fires some staff, pays for Peter's treatment, and then sets someone to watch him. Um, and then to build, building on my kind of comments, my Uncle Ben kind of as a hippie kind of um, friend from before, we kind of get a sense that um, Aunt May and Uncle Ben used to live on a commune, and we kind of see Aunt May talking about homeopathic remedies. So I think it's quite interesting that, that there's this kind of reimagining of them as this kind of um, as being this kind of bit more kind of ulti, kind of hippie kind of family. Um, we then see Peter back at school being bullied again. However, when Kong tries to kick him, uh, we see the kind of spider sense, the first kind of hint that he has powers kind of um, trigger when he catches the blow and kind of knocks Kong over. 
but however, he does have another seizure and passes out. Um, he wakes up in hospital where Aunt May kind of is talking to the doctor about how kind of frail Peter has been. Um, the doctors ask, and this is probably my favorite thing in terms of how how dated this comic is, the early 2000s. The doctor asks if he's been smoking marijuana or any other drugs um, and takes a blood sample from Peter. However, one of Osborne's men steals the sample and analysis reveals that the spider bite is slowly killing Peter. Um, and Norman orders one of his goons to try kill Peter to avoid his experiments being found. However, these attempts fail because Peter's spider sense alerts him to the danger. And when Norman hears about this, he retracts the hit, wanting to study him instead. And then recognizing that something's kind of changing with him, Peter does some science stuff and starts to piece together like what's happened from the spider bite onwards. However, in the process, he skips school and has an argument with his aunt and uncle. Um, and then while during this argument, his wall crawling ability starts to kick in and he tears some chunks of plaster from the wall. He wakes up later on that night and it's like kind of like 4 a.m. and staring at the ceiling. And then he decides to try climb and the issue ends with Peter uh, sitting upside down um, on his ceiling. Issue two opens uh, with Peter at school um, and we see him kind of falling asleep in class. And then when he's jolted awake, uh, his super strength kind of starts to kick in and he like tears a desk apart. And he has a bit of a crisis about whether or not to tell his aunt and uncle um, before he realizes that he's gotten really buff and he which means that he has the confidence to stand up to Flash Thompson, one of his main bullies, when he sees Flash trying to kind of flirt with Mary Jane in gym class. This leads to an after-school fight where Peter is able to avoid being hit by Flash, um, but he accidentally breaks Flash's hand when he catches a punch. We then see Kong telling Harry Osborne about this incident, and then Norman overhears this and asks Harry to bring Peter to Osborne Labs to show him around. Peter's relationship with his aunt and uncle becomes more tense as Flash Thompson's family threatens to sue the Parkers and May and Ben chastise Peter for getting into a fight. Peter kind of rejects their pacifism, uh, kind of arguing that after all the, arguing that he was sticking up for himself after all the bullying he's endured and kind of runs off. Later that night, we see Peter sneak out of the house and he begins to test his abilities in an abandoned warehouse. And then the following morning, he reconciles with an aunt and uncle who noticed that um, he stopped wearing his glasses. We then move to Peter being shown around Osborne Labs by Harry um, and are introduced to Otto Octavius, who kind of jumps on Peter taking a blood sample. Later on that evening, uh, Otto Octavius tells Norman Osborne that Peter's condition is stabilized and that Peter is healthier and stronger than before. Norman dismisses Otto and talks to his, talks to his assistant about trying to recreate this experiments that created that had these effects in Peter. And then his assistant is shocked when Norman requests that his own genetic profile be used. Issue 3 opens with Norman Osborne reviewing the footage of the spider bite incident and musing about introducing human DNA instead of animal DNA to his Oz formula. We then cut to the mall once, uh, once again, where people are being invited to challenge a professional wrestler. Peter puts together his first costume and jumps into the ring uh, and he completely demolishes the wrestler. Uh, takes the prize money and secretly donates it to his aunt and uncle to help cover their legal fees. Back at school, Peter is invited to replace Flash Thompson on the basketball team, becoming the star player. His rising popularity and his secret wrestling career catch MJ's, MJ's attention, but his bravado and flakishness start to annoy her and strain their relationship. At his next wrestling match, Peter, the MC is, uh, dubs Peter the Spectacular Spider-Man and gives him the initial version of the Spider-Man costume. 
The issue closes with Harry Osborne walking into a lab to see his father being strapped into some kind of exp science experiment. And then while Harry is being escorted from the lab, the experiment goes horribly wrong and Harry looks on in shock at what has happened to his father. Issue 4 opens with a news report detailing the carnage at Osborne Labs. Harry Osborne is reported to have been uninjured, however Norman Osborne is not amongst the wounding or the wounded or the dead. Peter's wrestling career comes to an end as money is stolen from the promoter's office and the promoter and the other wrestlers blame the mysterious Spider-Man. Mourning his wrestling career, Peter fails to stop a robber. Um, he returns home to another argument with his aunt and uncle over his sports commitments and the impact on his grades. He runs off, questions his identity and his powers, and decides to stay with Kong for a few days. Several nights later, Kong hosts a party. The focus kind of splits between a group of guys talking about Harry and the Osborne lab incident and Peter flirting with a fellow student, Liz Allen. Just as Liz goes in for the kiss, Mary Jane arrives and notices the pair and runs off. Peter tries to follow but runs into Uncle Ben. Peter and Uncle Ben have an argument and Uncle Ben gives the great power and great responsibility speech and talks about what would, what Peter's father would do. Peter, however, rejects this and disappears off into the night. We then see like a monstrous figure um, pull together a tattered cloak and mutter angrily. The issue closes with Peter reflecting on his argument with his uncle and his recent behavior and decides to tell both his aunt and uncle about his powers. However, on returning home, he is faced by a swarm of police cars around his house. Issue 5 opens with Harry Osborne being startled awake by someone screaming his name. He discovers to his horror that his home is ablaze and the mangled and burnt body of his mother. He then witnesses a monstrous figure leap through the flames and hurl a fireball at him. He barely manages to escape and witnesses the figure disappear off into the night. The issue then shifts to the Parker residence where Aunt May explains to the police the events that led to Uncle Ben's murder. When Peter overhears a police radio about a possible suspect, he storms off and changing and changes into his costume. He finds the criminal in, the, in an abandoned warehouse and upon taking him down, realizes it was the robber who he had an opportunity to stop. After leaving the killer to the police, Peter reflects on the lecture he received from Uncle Ben earlier that night and dedicates himself to helping others. He returns home to find MJ waiting for him and collapses with grief. Issue 6 opens at the Daily Bugle, introducing J. Jonah Jameson and his team of reporters. Uh, they compare headline stories across New York, and J. Jonah Jameson's obsession with Spider-Man has started when he sees the numbers that one of his rival papers got publishing a Spider-Man story. Uh, Peter has managed to crack his father's adhesive formula, providing Spider-Man with his web shooters. However, his new life as Spider-Man has begun to creep back into his school life as he keeps falling asleep in class and then destroying desks whenever he's startled awake. However, he compromises on this by quitting the basketball team. A very traumatized Harry Osborne returns to school. Um, however, almost immediately after this, the school is rocked by huge explosions with Harry convinced that something is trying to kill him. The students all evacuate the school and Peter devises a ruse to cover his costume change and then leaps into the building as Spider-Man. Uh, as he moves his way through the burning school, he comes face to face with a hulking figure shrouded in a cloak uh, who begins to hurl balls of flame at him. He brawls back and forth with this monstrosity, trying to get the creature away from the building. Um, however, he's caught off guard by the monster and it grabs Spider-Man, punches through the school wall and leaps away. It's growl sounding more and more like the words, Parker. Issue 7 opens with Peter realizing that this creature is seeking him as opposed to Harry. 
He manages to escape its clutches, swinging back into action to keep the monster away from his fellow students. Uh, he also battles to help to keep NYPD helicopters out of the melee and prevent the monster from escaping. The battle ends in a three-way standoff atop a bridge. As the monster bears down on Peter, the NYPD shoots the creature, who lunges at Peter in a last-ditch attempt to attack him. Peter dodges, and the creature falls, seemingly to its death in the river below. Peter evades the NYPD and returns to school, claiming that he was trapped under the debris. Harry Osborne reveals that he believes the creature was his father Norman, and that he was being hunted down. Peter questions whether or not he should tell Harry that the monster was after him instead. The issue closes at the river, where bubbles of air float up from the depths. Is the monster still alive? Cool, and we are back on Ultimate. Uh, <laughs> that was my my summary of uh, Ultimate Spider-Man numbers one through seven. <laughs> um, so I think we're gonna dig into like our probably main, like yeah, our main kind of kind of breakdown of of the issue. What were your kind of highlight? What were your kind of highlight moments, low light kind of moments? Like overall, like like I know you've kind of talked to you kind of felt mm. it was a very much kind of just general good comic, not yeah. too deep, not nothing too spectacular, kind of particularly deep on it. But were there any particular moments that kind of stood out to you, or mm, I I think that one thing that that i did like was i thought mary jane mm -hmm. was done quite well i think that she kind of felt like a proper character i know that she's obviously someone who i think my problem often is i think that women in in lots of traditional spider-man tales are just seen as mm -hmm. kind of just objects of affection for peter mm -hmm. so for example um i think that it's like black cat could be a really cool character but i think She's usually just kind of treated as kind of a yeah. It's like there's all, there's always the kind of overall focus on how her and Peter's her and Spider Man's relationship, or how Peter her and Peter's relationship kind of looks. Yeah, I think um, I think that 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 works really well for me. I think that that Mary Jane seems uh, I don't know. She just seems like she had she had a bit of a character which I quite liked. I think it's interesting, and I think. Mary Jane's an interesting character because obviously mm. in the original retellings of Spider-Man, Mary Jane doesn't become a character until quite a wee bit later. Yeah, like yeah. she's not like part of the original kind of initial Spider-Man cast, but it's almost that sort of thing of obviously you're doing this kind of retelling, you're doing this reimagining. And at this point in time, even if you're not a big comic fan, you kind of know like Marvel, I'm pretty sure they, when Marvel, when Peter in the comics, Peter Parker and Mary Jane got married, yeah, yeah. Like they threw like an actual wedding for them that Stanley officiated essentially. <laughs> and I think that's the sort of the sort of thing where even and obviously the the, the Spider-Man cartoon and that sort of side of thing, people know about Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson's relationship. So it's one of those things where it's almost like like you said, when you do this retelling, the reimagining, yeah. you introduce her as a character pretty much straight away because it's it's part of what people expect. Mm. Like everyone kind of, not everyone, but people, people know about like, you know, the idea of Gwen Stacy, like Gwen Stacy, I think was kind of in, in the original retellings of Spider-Man was kind of Peter Parker's kind of main love interest. Yeah. Yeah. Well before Mary Jane, but over time, because Mary Jane Watson has been this, become this such iconic character, then I think what's happened is, is then it actually probably makes a lot more sense just to kind of, and again, if you're trying to get new readers on board, you're trying to click, hit the points that people do know. 
Mm. And part of that is just going to be to go, let's establish Mary Jane as a character from the get go. Yeah, I think I think for me, uh, it is one of those things where I guess Gwen Stacy also these days is probably more known as the kind of spider spider woman. Mm. Oh, or what is yeah, Spider Woman. Yeah, yeah, Spider Woman. That's the Spider Gwen kind of stuff. And I think also I like the fact that it's. I think that other other retellings of Spider Man, the other universe, but still kind of like fundamentally the same, right? Not too radical different. So uh, the other one I think of is more like uh, the Spider Man games. Mm. I think they have trouble with Mary Jane. Um, I think even the Raimi films, which I love, and mm. you know, that's my that's a thing that we'll get onto. But um, I think that it's something where um, they have trouble with how to do her as a character. Yep. Um, I think that the Spider-Man games, for example, they had trouble when they tried to make a kind of like kind of how Lois Lane was like ten years ago, mm. ten fifteen years ago, where. She's like a journalist who, but then keeps getting stuck in situations and gets saved. You know, mm. I think that you know now. I think that um, obviously uh, Lois Lane has completely evolved and is more kind of that noir type um, mm. investigative journalist, but not in a way that's just kind of damsel in distress. Mm. Um, which which I never thought works. That just making them a journalist, which is normally what they do with a girlfriend, and they don't know what to do with. But in this, it's still like fundamentally seems like Mary Jane. But she, I don't know, she just seemed like she had a bit of a character and she wasn't just there to be. And I think I think it's the yeah. sort of thing of like, you obviously there is a bit of the, there's the kind of romantic tension kind of That's built true, in. Yeah. But I think also part of the idea of like how they introduce Mary Jane is that she's like a childhood friend of Peter's. Yeah. And like, it's that sort of thing. I think that is an interesting way to approach it as well was to kind of have the sort of thing of like, you can you build their relationship you, you know you still have that kind of little potential love interest kind of tension there but i think what you do is you build her relation their relationship as something that is kind of based in that kind of friendship which i thought was quite interesting and i think also kind of it it's it creates this kind of thing where obviously she's part of the kind of popular mm. crowd and then you know and obviously still friends with peter but obviously it doesn't step yeah. in with peter's getting like bullied with everything that sort of sort yeah. of thing i thought that was an interesting thing because i think and then as peter when peter gets his powers and then starts growing in popularity you see that suddenly it's a sort of thing where it, you see that kind of dynamic shift where like and obviously and again i think it's quite funny where she does call him out for suddenly going from like this kind of you know quiet science you could guy for a bit to go into this kind of like real macho kind of like doing all that sort of sort of thing i think yeah. that I think that kind of is a good leaping on point for Peter Parker because I think, I think it, I think it works. It's probably one of the most compelling ones in terms of like, <clears throat> in terms of seeing his kind of like, I guess how his progression is in this sort yeah. of thing where you you see those kind of moments where he kind of is about to snap, like when he's being bullied and then he gets the powers and then, then he's able to defend himself and then he's able to keep you know he keeps. He's able to get some kind of popularity and some kind of clout. But I think I liked that kind of, I think I like this kind of characterization of Peter Parker. And I don't think I've seen it. I don't, I don't think I've seen it in any, any other adaptation mm. of this. Like I think, I think like the, yeah, like the Raimi films, he gets his powers, but he, you know, he gets in like the fight with Flash Thompson, but he doesn't really, there's not yeah. really anything there. They don't really do high school in, in the Raimi film, eh? And like, I think, I think yeah. it's a good point. I think, I think that's good. I'm mm. glad they didn't, but. But I think it's interesting. I think it's a good kind of jumping on point. Again, if you're going to do this retelling is 
you do double down a bit more on the high school soap opera kind of drama. Yeah. And I think part of probably what makes Ultimate Spider-Man a bit more compelling is that obviously if you go back and read Amazing Fantasy 15, which is, you know, the 60s, Silver Age kind of origin of Spider-Man. Obviously, it's written by Stanley and Jack Kirby, who Stanley was in his 40s, like 40s or 50s when he was writing. Yeah. And some of the dialogue is obviously very clearly someone in their kind of 40s trying to write dialogue that sounded like how teenagers speak. Whereas I feel like part of it is, I think, Bendis, like, I don't know how old Bendis would have been, but I presume he would have been maybe in his 30s when he got on, when he started writing Ultimate Spider-Man. So obviously you have someone where the dialogue doesn't sound as kind of like, it's a high school drama, but it's, and it hits a lot of those high school kind of drama stereotype points without really digging into like the, I guess the, the written cliches in terms of like language and that sort of thing. Mm. It feels a much more natural kind of dialogue. Yeah. So I, I think this is a good jumping on point. We'll just talk mm. about it here. Cause, cause we, when you asked me, uh, what, what was my first kind of thoughts? Um, and I think that my first thoughts really is that there's a lot of stuff where clearly at the time, you know, the Raimi, the Raimi film. And I think that both, I think the whole Raimi trilogy was such a, like a lot of people like our age was like a big thing of my childhood. Mm. I think particularly Spider-Man 2 yeah. was a massive one. And I think that the, the one of the similarities clearly is they have like the wrestling thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that invented in this. No, that was that was in the sixties. Oh, really? Yeah. So that that that's been a through line. Interesting. And I think, <laughs> which kind of makes more sense that it, would, yeah. it wouldn't have been originated in that because um, I know for a fact that uh, we'll probably talk about it later. But there's with with the Raimi film, it's clearly the influence is much more instead of modernizing, etc. Mm. It is modernizing, but it's also uh, it's very much. It feels a lot much more kind of not kind of it feels much more timeless yeah like it does feel like there's a level of like okay it's it's kind of the 2000s but not really like it's like this could be the 60s (laughs) yeah it's very much he's very influenced no for a fact that that raimi was very influenced by the 60s kind of um silver age spider-man stuff i know that that was one of the issues with spider-man 3 was he was not interested in like the venom stuff Mm. which you could tell when you if you ever rewatch it the things that are the most interesting and the best parts of the films are like the Sandman stuff. Yeah. Um, that which, who was meant to be the, the kind of main villain in that. Um, I think that it, it is also interesting while there's, there are all these similarities, I guess the two differences, and this is something that I was surprised when I, when I read ultimate Spider-Man, the fact that I know it's a big thing, but there wasn't organic, organic web shooters. Mm. See, that's a big thing. Cause like as a kid, my first point of Spider-Man was, watching um the Raimi films yeah. and then I remember seeing some of the 90s Spider-Man like on TV like reruns and like <laughs> getting really confused and really hating the whole idea of like the um organic not no, 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 no the mechanical web mechanic yeah. yeah and I they have that in this and I do think that it just it like makes zero sense to me I know that it's such a mainstay and it's there because it's precious to fans but it's something where like it just it, it makes it's like he has to keep making it I think like, uh, I think it's one of those ones where, because I guess it establishes a sort of again. I think the whole idea of that obviously is that Peter Parker is this, he knows he's a science nerd like he loves this like but it's yeah, but it's almost in a sort of way where I don't want to say it's trying to be realistic, but I think there is a level where a lot of retellings 
the idea kind of behind it is that you're kind of you, you, you're trying to streamline bits of it. Yeah. And I think what happens is is that that science kind of nerd stuff, even if you're trying to build quite a fantastical world, doesn't quite fit the the mechanical web shooters. Like it, it does feel like yeah. the kind of next big thing. Like it, it's almost a sort of thing of like. It's almost like, and I almost feel like, let's say in the Raimi series, mm. if he hadn't had the webs initially, and then he graduates, he goes to uni, and then he develops, it's a sort of thing I feel like it, it's a sort of, you know, the idea of Spider-Man as a super genius. I feel like it would be a way, the way to kind of do the mechanical web shooters is you build it in a bit later, if you wanted yeah. to do that. But I do think that like, the organic web shooters were definitely something I thought that a Spider-Man yeah. would just have, like... Me too, because it's something where it it also kind of makes more sense mm. that he would get from the spider bite, would also <laughs> get the spider powers, right? Mm. So it was something that I was surprised wasn't there. Um, I think also that the the Raimi one doesn't focus on high school at all. Like it's yeah. pretty much straight away not in high school anymore. And the Raimi one doesn't have any of the kind of genius stuff, mm. really. He's kind of like an average bloke, which I think I always kind of preferred. Yeah. In the, the Raimi one, because I think I was never a science nerd. You know, people talk about Spider-Man being the most relatable, but as a child, he never really was <laughs> to me. But I did find the Raimi one more relatable because he was kind of like an average bloke. Mm. I think also, you know, we're in our 20s now. You rewatch it and he's like got like a really uh, rubbish, like um, falling down uh, apartment. Mm. You know, he's got like, you know, he's renting <laughs> and his landlord's pretty, pretty terrible. So it's one of those things where it's like... Um, it's more focused on like the struggles of being in your early twenties, mm. leaving high school slash university slash just going into work life, which I think is, is different to the ultimate stuff, even though there are stuff in the ultimate stuff, which are, which is very, what, very similar. What would you say the, cause obviously this ultimate Spider-Man comes out a year or two before yeah. the Raimi film does. Obviously I presume some of that was in pre-production would have been in production at the time this came out. Yeah. Did you think there was anything that kind of crossed over that you think the ultimate, the, like the ultimate Spider-Man, the first couple of issues of ultimate Spider-Man fed into the Raimi thing at all? Or do you think they, no. you think that they kind of, or I almost wonder if it's this sort of thing of, is it yeah. just that they came out at similar times? So actually it was probably quite a good time for ultimate Spider-Man to have been coming out and like a kind of revamp. Yeah, I think also the fact that they're both doing Origins of Spider-Man anyway, mm. and they're just at the same time, and it's the beginning of a of a of the you know of the twenty first century mm. that a lot of things are trying to scramble to to kind of do new interpretations. I know that the the Raimi film was was in production for ages. I yeah. know that there was they were going to do it with I think it was Stephen Spielberg was going to do it at one point. Um, James Cameron was going to do one. Was it James? It must have yeah. been James Cameron instead of Spielberg. But it was like a big name director before Raimi. And and I think even the original script, very early on, they were doing the organic web shooters, which just makes sense. It's, so I think I read something from James Cameron and that was the way the organic web shooters came out. Yeah. And they they really doubled down on like as, as a puberty metaphor. Oh, we're like We're like Aunt May comes to Peter's closed door and there's like this white kind of sticky fluid sitting yeah. at the bottom of his door sort of sort of thing yeah and they so, did kind of have a joke in mm. the Raimi film eh <laughs> about that yeah I think actually so I, I think the one thing I do think the Raimi film took not necessarily directly from Ultimate Spider-Man but I think it leads into probably one of my favourite things from, from characters and reimaginings yep. of a character in, in Ultimate Spider-Man is I think 
they took the Green Goblin away from so Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, away from the kind of comic book. Like he's a kind of in the comic book, he's kind of got like this kind of mask, but it's got like a big stocking cap, and he's got he's, oh, and, yes. a, and a purple tunic and that sort of sort of thing. Yeah. And I think again, I don't know if it's a direct influence, but I think it's it's an acknowledgement that that you know it's goofy and there has definitely been stories where that that kind of mainstream version of the green goblin is terrifying and very like almost like like the joker sort of side of things yeah but i think in terms of a retelling both the raimi film and ultimate spider-man take very different approaches to the green goblin that's true so, yeah and that are maybe a little bit more on looking at him as kind of being a bit more kind of monstrous this goofy yeah. and more menacing yeah i think also uh yeah i think this is a big thing that that i always talk about whenever we talk about spider-man one i think spider-man one well i think lots of it has dated and i think it is kind of like a, a lot more comedic mm. in tone than than like i you know nostalgia and roast into glasses mm. than i remember because i remember it being darker but i'm probably thinking of spider-man 2 here but um, the end battle scene is, has, I think, is aged really well and is one of the best comic book fight scenes like put on screen. Mm. And I think it's similar to in, oh, what's it called? Uh, in the Ultimate Spider-Man. In Ultimate Spider-Man, it's, again, very, uh, very super-powered heavy. That's really like, br- it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's that whole stuff where everything crept down. And, and in, the, in the film as well, it's really mm. brutal. Like, there's no soundtrack. It's very Raimi where there's... Um, you know everything's quite kinetic mm. and everything's quite you can feel every punch i think in the film i yeah. think it's, it's excellent because it's it's also really grimy and it's it's um it's masks like half blown off yeah like burns all down his face and yeah like it's brutal and then i think in the comic book it's a similar thing but but it's more um power there's more mm. powers more comic book powers and I, th- yeah. and I think i think yeah so and, and the big so for context like the ultimate version of the green goblin is essentially He's like the Hulk. Essentially, it is a Hulk design, but he's got these kind of like Norman Osborn, whatever his, the formula does to him, he has these big horns and this kind of like huge, he yeah, muscles up massively. And then, but I think in the same way that they keep a lot of the kind of key elements of the Green Goblin where he has this like, he, you know, steals someone's like sheet because he essentially the accident that gives him, the crit turns him into the Norman Osborn, into the Green Goblin, essentially blow essentially you know he's flees off into the night and he kind of wraps himself in this kind of like big purple sheet so you do get this kind of you do get that purple green color scream like the the, go- the green goblin always has these kind of like pumpkin grenades or this like sort of thing and then but instead of the grenades he has pyrokinesis so he can hurl yeah. fireballs and stuff like that and i thought that was a really interesting way to update and obviously keep some of the core aspects of the character while still kind of giving them a kind of different twist. And what I thought with with the Green Goblin is that in this, in the first story arc, he essentially is mindless. Like he's on a rampage. And again, I think that's why the Hulk comparison is there. He is this hulking kind of green kind of scaled kind of creature. And like you said, in that fight scene in the comic, it's less actually a fight scene and more Spider-Man trying to keep him away yeah. from people and essentially every time he stuffs up, the Green Goblin will essentially just beats, like beats, almost beats him to death sort of sort of thing. He's just, and it is brutal. He's, it's a reckon, it's the sort of thing of, 
this character is significantly stronger than Spider-Man, and it's not so much. And again, I think it's a good thing. I think it ties one of the big kind of parts of that of this ultimate reimagining of Spider-Man, which is the great power and great responsibility speech, because that's always a big part of any Spider-Man, yeah, origin. But in Ultimate Spider-Man, and one of the I was listening to an interview with Brian Michael Bendis and one of the things that he found most interesting and he really liked was that he was like, I liked having seven or, you know, four or five issues to flesh out Uncle Ben as a character, Aunt May as as characters, as opposed to like in the original Spider-Man comic, Uncle Ben appears on four pages for maybe two or three panels. Like it's, it's, and he is very generic like lovely guy kind of very generically good whereas in ultimate spider-man what happens is is that he's a hippie like he and that's one of my favorite thing and again in terms of cool character design choices you know he's a hippie with a ponytail and it's and it's but i think what happens is is that that characterization you see that and he's a pacifist so then when you have this green goblin fight it is about Spider-Man protecting people and trying to get away from the Green Goblin or keep direct the Green Goblin yeah. away from things. And I think it kind of sums up that kind of pacifist aspect. And it's, you know, and again, it highlights Spider-Man as an agile character. It highlights that. But I think it kind of ties together that kind of Uncle Ben sort of side of things. And my, my big thing with Uncle Ben, right, is that across the first issues that he appears in, he's a happy but he's really fucking preachy in a way that gets really annoying and you sit there and go, and the same thing, Peter Park, Peter's being bullied pretty horrifically and you just sit there and go, no, no, like Pete, like Uncle Ben is 100% approaching this wrong. So he's like, no, you you can't defend yourself. You shouldn't fight and that sort of thing. And it's, it is pretty preachy. Yeah. And you you get that sort of sort of thing. And then he gives the great power, great responsibility speech and Peter's just like, that's stupid and runs off. And there's a massive fight. And I think you you get to build in this kind of tension of, you know, he's having fights with his aunt and yeah. uncle. And then he dies. And he dies in a way that is senseless. It's senseless, but it's senseless in the fact that, like, he kind of tries de-escalating the situation and pisses off the robber more. Yeah. And then that's how he gets shot. And I think it, it's a different type of senseless. I do think that uh, if we, we move on mm. now to a couple of low points, I think that for me, I don't think there's a lot of low points, but I think for me, one of them is I do think that people, the writing for um, people's reactions to Peter Parker when he changes a little bit, mm. I think are kind of weirdly unreasonable. Like, I don't <laughs> think he's that bad. Like, he goes to a party or something. Mm. And he like talks to a girl or something and then someone gets upset about that. And I think that it, I think that Aunt May and um, Uncle Ben are also like kind of unreasonably upset at him about mm. stuff. And it's like you have to think like it's only been a matter of days or whatever at that point. It hasn't been that long. <laughs> and they're like really getting angry at him about stuff. It's like and also how did these grades get like drop that considerably within that time <laughs> and i don't think they even dropped that badly yeah it was just i thought that there was that was my one issue is i do think that um i think this happens a lot i think with with things where they try and add drama mm. and try and talk about how uh you know this person's change and this person's like 
go losing it you know they're, they're, yeah. they're um losing sight of what matters but i think in this one it was like peter's not really acting that badly i don't know he's like a teenager right mm. like teenagers should be able to go to parties like <laughs> <laughs> i think so my 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 counterpoint to that is that's why i think yeah aunt may and uncle ben's having like an actual worldview yeah informs that where i can sit there and go okay you're old hippies and you're kind of like you know you have your again i think it kind of gives that kind of reason to be like mm. it is unreasonable but in a way that is consistent it isn't just kind of like oh you're being naughty sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think for me it was just i don't know i just think it was um it was just writing which didn't it didn't make sense a lot to me i would have mm. thought it would be more interesting if maybe it was more in an extended period of time. Yeah. And if maybe if he actually properly fell off the rails a little bit, like maybe Peter does, maybe he becomes a bit of a bully or something. Like maybe he does actually mm. start, you know, he realizes, oh, I'm quite strong. And then does be a little bit of a bully or, or you know what I mean? Like maybe he does do something actually radically bad. But I think in this, they, they try to make sure that, you know, we can't make Peter do anything too bad, I think. And it's... It's a sort of thing of like, it's, I almost feel like the one, the way you do it is if, if you have him do something as Spider-Man, not necessarily like super, like, you know, you, it's like in what's it called Man of Steel when you see like Superman, mm. there's the, in the trucker bar or whatever. And there's the guy who's being addicted to Clark Kent. And then he like storms out and then you go out. So the trucker comes outside and, super, and Superman's essentially like, yeah. like taken three logs and just like jammed them through his like vehicle. And I almost feel like, and I wonder if there's something that's a lot of Spider-Man things miss is that that sort of thing. Like we always get the idea, like you say, with the wrestling, which again is, I was thinking in the back of my head, is like, that's probably a more just a, a kind of strength on how professional wrestling is something that's just been consistently like a consistent cultural reference yeah. from the sixties onwards. It's also like, like good for you yeah. i don't know it's one of those things <laughs> also on the superman point i also think the genius about that scene is that is superman is he while he did that and it's something reckless something that he did but it's also like he's saving that guy from drink driving mm. <laughs> no, seriously but um but i think for me i think it's also we were talking earlier that i saw um the film talk to me mm. i think that's a film where while it's set in australia there were so many things where it's what it gets on point is that you have to remember, and I think that's why I think a lot of people forget, and I think that films, uh, usually films and books, that get really on point and do really well with, with children, right? Not children, but you know, high, schoolers, high yeah. schoolers, right? Is that they're not fully developed people. Mm. And I think that they make bad mistakes and bad things can happen. Like they make silly, do silly, silly things, especially with peer pressure and do stuff like that. And and I don't, I think that that's part of growing up, right? Yeah. I think that people, they're not fully developed. We're not fully developed people, you know what I mean? Mm. Which I, I think is, it's not a bad thing. It's just, I think that it would have been more interesting if, say, like Peter Parker did maybe got into the wrong crowd and did do genuinely something, mm. something bad or something, you know, it's one of those things where I think that it does it doesn't feel very realistic. I think that everyone's very well behaved. I think everyone is very well behaved. The party looked very, very nice and very, very yeah. well behaved. Um, and it's one of those things where I think that it, it is one of those things we were talking about earlier where it's like, is this a film? Sorry, not film. Uh, is this a book where, you know, has Bendis writing 
child, you know, writing not children, um, teenagers, writing high yeah. schoolers, teenagers, how they're doing that. And I do think that it is something where it's. I think it does miss the mark a little bit for me. I mm. think it is very safe. I don't think it's very realistic. It didn't didn't speak to me as someone who, um, you know, that we're, we're at the age where we still clearly remember us being in high school. Mm. It does feel like a little bit of a stone throw away. Yet a lot has happened since. And I think it's one of those things where I look back and like parties could get really wild, like genuinely yeah. like bad things could happen. Like, yeah, it, you know, could happen because, you know, well, I think that's what I was saying. Like, I guess I was thinking like when you think about the wrestling thing, like, you know, the whole idea is that, mm. you know, Peter's the wrestler and then, you know, he stopped, fails to stop the guy who robbed, you know, stop, fails to stop a robber and then, and it's the the kind of point that always comes up in a lot of Spider-Man origin stories is like, oh, he was using Spider-Man for personal gain for his own selfish reasons. But it's the point in time of beginning, like you said, yeah, in Ultimate Spider-Man, the family set up is like, okay, they're poor yeah. and someone threatens to sue them. And mm. it's like, we need money. Yeah. And I feel like, like you said, it's the point of like, it would be interesting to see Peter using Spider-Man for something that's actually selfish. Yeah. And there was, because, because the end, like you said, because then, or like you said, at a party, it's the point of if Peter gets drunk and then does lash out at someone and let's say breaks someone's jaw. Yeah. Like yeah. it's like you add that kind of level of, you know, there is actual consequence to mm. this. And again, you don't need to make it like, and again, like that scene with Flash Thompson where he breaks Flash Thompson's hand, obviously in self-defense, and he feels really bad about it. But obviously it's self-defense. Yeah. Whereas, whereas if you flip that and go, okay, no, he he's in the fight and he does, and he grabs Flash Thompson's arm and breaks it. Mm. You flip that. You flip that idea, you flip that dynamic, and you go, actually, no, okay, here is him actively causing harm. I think this also brings me back to the Grant Morrison idea uh, when they were talking about uh, Zenith and they were talking about, well, uh, I can't remember what famous sprinter they were talking about, but it's like, it, it's like, uh, you know, they don't expect this fame, a very big gold medalist sprinter to mm. go out and be the flash and run out and run around and use their natural gifts to save people, mm. you, you know, cause it's ridiculous. <laughs> they might be incredibly fast, but they use it like normal people would use it. And I think it's the same where like Spider-Man isn't Superman, right? Yeah. The gifts that Spider, especially without the webs, like the mm. gifts that Spider-Man has is being quite strong and climbing walls. Right? No, yeah. it's true. And, and agility. I, That's the only agility. Thing. Yeah, great. It can do backflips, <laughs> which is which is good, but it's not exactly Superman, mm. you know. And it's one of those things where I think that using, I think that telling him off for going and using his abilities to do a job, which everyone needs to do, and mm. uh, especially as a poor, low-income family, often, you know, uh, children have to work. Mm. You know, especially in New Zealand. Uh, but it's one of those things where a lot of people have second jobs, part-time jobs and all these things. And he's using his, his just to like a legitimate profession, which is, uh, well, which, pro wrestling. Yeah. Pro wrestling. <laughs> and also I think it's also a problematic message. I've always felt of, uh, if there's something like that, you should go and stop the person who just robbed this person. Right. Mm. You know, I'm talking about in a store, like going yeah. and, because I think that it's also that is problematic because I think that is something that's kind of promoting proper vigilante justice in a, in a way. Because I think realistically, mm. it's it is unreasonable to be have a, a Peter Parker to have been in that situation unreasonable. In, realistically, if someone is robbing a store in front of you, 
Like, what are you going to do? Probably call the right authorities. Mm. Like, that's kind of it, right? That's what you you can do. You're not actually really expected to stop in and <laughs> beat them up and and wrap them up or whatever. It, you know, that's why people have insurance anyway. Mm. It's you know, that's why businesses have insurance. Yeah. So it's one of those things where um, I think that it's kind of unreasonable. And I do think that Peter Parker in the book I'm reading, he seems like a, a nice, jolly little kid. <laughs> he seems nice enough. He, you know, he does decent at school. He goes mm. to a very tame party, let's be honest, <laughs> and then like does some wrestling. And mm. that that's the stuff he did that's apparently him going off the edge. And I think it's like it for me that that's the part which was a very low point for me where yeah. like it did feel very safe and didn't feel very realistic mm. and didn't feel very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I think again, the Spider-Man purely Spider-Man stuff uh, was the stuff that, that I think yeah. worked best. And I, I do stick by the whole stuff with like, I think it was still fun to read. Yeah. I still read through it. It didn't stay with me, but um, I do think that I would have liked it more if they, yeah, if they truly like properly did something interesting with like, what would Spider-Man, Peter Parker, this kid, what would yeah. he be like if he got these powers? What realistically would be someone that would have done that? You what, know? Well, I think there's one like, what's it called? Like with, and it comes up in Spider-Verse with Gwen Stacy with Peter Parker. The idea is that Peter Parker gets bullied to the extent that he you know, does the does the dumb thing, takes the lizard serum, becomes this kind of monster, yeah. and then accidentally gets, you know, in, that, in the process of doing that, gets killed. And I feel like you got those hints where you see in the early issues before he gets his powers where he starts to snap. And what I feel like is that kind of thing of actually showing what that looks like. Like, again, like that kind of point, I think that is the natural flow of it. You have someone who's being bullied, you have that sort of thing, and then suddenly they have the power power to essentially get their own back a little bit. And I mm. think you can, you know, and you don't, you know, like you said, you can take it to a bit more extreme, but you don't have to take it so far as to make Peter Parker irredeemable. But there's a way to make that kind of a little bit, come across a little bit stronger. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I, th I think it is one of those things where, um, it, I think that's where it, it definitely falls down. But mm. I do think overall it is something that's fun. Um, I liked, you know, it was kind of fun seeing the, we were talking about like the political stuff mm. that, that isn't really in this, but they did do the updating thing to do with um, was it genetics, yeah. which is something that was going on at the time. Um, so I think that, that that's interesting. I did actually read that a bit more because you mentioned it, uh, either to me or was it last podcast or yeah, it might have been yeah. It may be my last podcast or to me, and that was something that was going through my mind when I was reading it, and I was like, that's that is kind of interesting. Mm. Like updating, like little uh, tweaks like that, I like and appreciate. I think often if you're doing something like this, I think my, my biggest criticism is if you're doing something like Ultimates, right? Ultimate, sorry, Ultimate Universe stuff. Yeah. Do something different. You know, yeah. this could easily have been a Batman Year One. One of my my problems is this easily could have been a Batman Year One type thing where you're basically it's basically in continuity slash not, mm. where you're basically retelling, you know, in continuity Spider Man. It's like origin. Like it's not really that radically different. Mm. I think there are tweaks. I think that the the presentation of Green Goblin is different, but. Um, but other than that, it's largely this. It's largely kind of the same. It could have been in continuity, and I think that's kind of yeah. Because I guess because I guess because I guess my kind of thought on that would be, 
I guess that's probably like the, the behind the scenes stuff where they weren't really sure yeah. if that this was going to spawn into anything more than, because this, like I said, we, this was originally just going to be a six, seven issue, pardon me, six, seven issue miniseries. Yeah. And I almost wonder if that's the sort of thing of like, I wonder as we get into the next, the subsequent story arcs, where obviously they are preparing to do it as an ongoing series, how those shifts happen, whether they actually do commit a bit more to some of those more radical differences, because now it's like, okay, cool, we're not just doing this as a one-off, we're doing this long-term. Yeah, I yeah I agree. I think I think it's obviously it it, it probably definitely wasn't um, <laughs> the idea wasn't to spawn that whole line that they end up doing, especially when you consider the kind of gap between. Uh, this and was it Ultimate X Men the next one? Ultimate X Men. So this is Ultimate Spider Man comes out in two thousand. Ultimate X Men two thousand one. Oh, was it two thousand one? Yeah. So really? Ultimate X Men comes a year out, like year after. Oh wow! Because I would not have guessed that reading. I would have guessed it was like two thousand three. <laughs> yeah. So I think Ultimate is two thousand and three, and Fantastic Ultimate Fantastic Four is two thousand and four. I think. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So I think I think they are kind of spaced out year by year a little bit, but mm. so it is a little bit more mm. Earth One. Yeah. But it's comparison, yeah. As you see, before we kind of get into our wrap-up, there was one more character that I did think was a bit of a highlight for me. And I think, and it's what's it called, what's his name, Kong? Who's like one of the one of the jocks, one of Peter's bullies. But he's the one character who I feel like he's not based on any character. Like he's an original, he's a character who yeah, is he's, created for the Ultimate Universe. He's the one that's quite nice, eh? Yeah, and, and again, <laughs> I think, <laughs> and I just think that's the point in time of being like, my, from what I what I understand, he kind of becomes, he's not like necessarily the author insert or like the reader insert, but I think it's interesting to see a character. It's probably the difficulty of revamping characters, and like you said, even though mm. people want you should be trying to make character the existing characters different, I almost feel like it's a way to having like someone who isn't burdened by any kind of expectation of how they are, can be quite useful to have that character there. And I don't know, I think he was just one of those things, obviously, amidst all the high school drama stuff. Obviously, he was the bully before. And then, obviously, and part of it's because Pete gets popular and joins the basketball team and that sort of thing. But he just just does generally seem like a nice person. Yeah. And I think that was just one of the things I, I like that kind of... I don't know, he was just a character who stood out to me as someone who I thought was quite cool. Yeah, no, I agree. Because he was the one that, that let him stay on his couch, yeah. right? Yeah. I did was thinking, again, going back to my point, they all seem kind of like good kids. <laughs> and, you know, the party that I think he 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 did mm. seemed quite tame. It was it was nice. You know, they seem like jolly, jolly, lovely, lovely kids, <laughs> lovely young men and young, lovely young women. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that the whole crew, that everybody in there seemed, you know, reasonable. Mm. I guess that there were some kind of caricature-y type jocks as well, but... But even then, I thought some of the jocks were... That's the yeah. one I was thinking about. I thought they were, even they weren't that bad. <laughs> they could have been worse. <laughs> I was thinking probably as we kind of come to our, yeah. our kind of wrap-up, I was just thinking, like, there was a couple of, like, quite little, like... Part of it is, like, going back to something that came out in the 2000s, right? It's some stuff that probably hasn't dated on various fronts that hasn't dated super well. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the, the one that obviously... You look back and go like, and you kind of eye roll at it and you go, ugh, is there is that one point in the party scene when Peter's flirting with someone and yeah. she goes like, I thought you were gay. <laughs> <laughs> 
and obviously it's something of like nothing takes you back in a comic back to like the early nine mid of the nineties two thousands. Then obviously like using gays like in, in that because uh, it's yeah. one of the things I remember like that was high school shit that was phasing out when we were in high school. Mm. But the other one, the other the other one that I thought was really funny was when Peter goes to the doctor, and the doctor's like, "Have you been smoking marijuana?" <laughs> Yeah. And it's and again, same sort of thing. Nothing kind of like dates your comic. Like it's something like what dates your comic in terms of your references and you're like, are you on the marijuana, Peter? Yeah, that is true. Those were the two that, that, that did get me as well because I was thinking, um, I think there, there'll be a lot more later. Oh, is there? Oh, yes. No, there will be. Ultimate X-Men's next, right? Mm. Yeah. So there are a few, yeah, Ew, 2000s. Going through 2000s <laughs> comics is, is a fun ride. And the other thing, and I, I was a comment I saw, and it was talking about, it was it was on an interview, and it was someone was talking about about the dating, and it was a nice counterpoint to the idea of like these comics are really dated and aren't really relevant. Someone's like, well, all the fashion yeah. and all the stuff that's all the fashion choices that come up in this comic, obviously like late nineties, early two thousands fashion trends, and someone's like, no, this actually isn't something that date that isn't something that dates this comic particularly badly because all those fashion trends have now started coming yeah. back into fashion. Y2K. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And yeah, so and oh, and the other thing the one final thing I thought was quite funny and I think it'd be interesting to see as we go through is and I don't know if it's a this is like a little like a little comic deep cut for me was that the green goblin looks really weird because even though he's a hulking monstrosity his hands and like face are like green, but then his torso, he like, he does that, you know, his bare chest pretty much the whole comic and his torso is this weird kind of like skin cut. Like he, you know, he mm. looks like his, it's only his hands and face that have changed. And then I'm pretty sure that's something that does become more consistent as the book goes on is that he just, he does become just this whole hulking green monster. Yeah. Is it a quick question? Did you also think this is something that was going through my head? So it's not the first time I've actually seen that design because I think I've seen that. I think I, I bought a Spider-Man toy as a kid and it was the green, that green goblin mm. ultimate. And I was really confused. I was, cause it was like my only touch point was that, but I always felt that that design just is very anime inspired. Is that just me? It feels very, very anime inspired to me. That actually makes it. Yeah. No, it I'd agree with that. It does feel very, yeah. very anime inspired. Um, I was never big into anime as a kid, but it was something when I saw that figure, I was like, oh, is this from a Spider-Man anime I mm. didn't know about? So reading it and knowing that it's from Ultimate, uh, yeah. that it does feel very anime inspired to me. Yeah, because I feel yeah. like I've seen things that are like Spider-Man, but yeah, like within like the Green Goblet and it's that kind of like Japanese kind of Oni kind of mask. He's got like yeah. the horns and he's got the kind of two like ogre fangs sort of stuff. Yeah, actually that. Yeah, yeah. The, that was <laughs> something that, that struck me just talking about the design, just a side point. It's not a negative or a positive. Mm. I think actually I, I, I actually kind of like the design. I thought it's kind of interesting. I think if you're going to make it into a monstrosity, I think the fact that it's not very human mm. is, is a good thing. And I think, and I think some of the most, like the genuinely kind of pretty nasty things. Like there's a bit where, what is it? Harry Osborne, like Norman Osborne's son. Yeah. Wakes up in the middle of the night and his house is on fire. And he's like, here's like someone yelling his name. And then comes into his, comes in the living room and like his mother, you just see his like a hand sticking out from under this pile of rubble and it's his mother. And obviously then his dad is in this house throwing fireballs around. And it's just one of the things like, it's just one of those moments you sit and go, okay, this is actually genuinely monstrous like this is actually yeah it really hammers home the green goblin as this kind of 
really vicious kind of creature. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought I thought that was yeah the depiction of of him was was very interesting because I think with um, talking about the Raimi one because uh, now we're specifically talking about Green Goblin. I think that Green Goblin that the monstrosity is more mental way that it changed his mental state. Mm. It's the switching between, although I think that it's just basically made him insane. Yeah. So he is a monster, but it's like, he's in no way redeemable whatsoever. He's mm. insane. Uh, he will kill, he tries to kill, you know, Aunt May he tries to do that. He's, he's awful just like in exactly in that, mm. but it's more mental while this, I think it's, it's, like there's no ambiguity, like all over, like mm. absolute monsters. So I think that that is something that's quite interesting. Yeah. Nah. All right. So I think we'll probably wrap up there. Um, mm. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening today, <laughs> listening into the show. Um, cool. We'll be back. The next episode will be on Ultimate X Men numbers one through six, and this is a real special one for me because Ultimate X Men. I was yeah. talking to one of my friends from high school, and I was talking about where we, uh, you and I were doing this podcast. Yeah. And he was like, "Oh." Do you still have that beat up old copy of Ultimate X-Men? <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to that. It, it is one of the earliest comics that the first volume of Ultimate X-Men is one of the first comics I ever owned. So mm. I'm really looking forward to forward to that. Um, sweet. But yeah, um, thank you for listening to the show. Um, check us out on probably all your, any kind of podcasting platform. Um, we're probably going to do a big, big episode release. Probably do three or four episodes at once, or whatever. Um, but yeah, make sure to check out for that. And um, yeah, we'll update with our social medias and all that so where you can find us as we get to it. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Brilliant. <laughs>